So why do we call this Friday good? Most linguists will tell you that it's because it is an older use of the word of good that means holy. But there is also a long-standing idea that it's because the day is good because it's the day that Jesus died for our sins. So what I'd like to ask today is whether that idea holds up. Is it possible to find goodness in the idea that Jesus was born in order to die? Can we find goodness in a state execution? Because that's what crucifixion was, a state execution reserved for non-citizens, mostly slaves, and especially for people who led rebellions. Crucifixion was for enemies of the state. It was a political death, meant to be shameful, meant to be excruciating. So, can there be anything good about the incarnation of the second person of the Trinity being tortured to death in a public execution? Let's consider first the idea that Jesus was born to die, or that God came into the world in order to suffer. I mean, it's a common theme in our hymns. It's everywhere. It seems to be implied in the passages from Isaiah and Hebrews that we heard, this, heard earlier. But I'm wondering if that's because that's what we've been told about how to hear those passages rather than what, and if there's another interpretation that might be possible. Take the passage from Isaiah. Does it make more sense to think of it as a piece of writing from the Hebrew theological imagination that was used to make sense of the experience of Jesus being executed or that it was originally meant to foretell the wrongful death of the coming Messiah? In other words, I'm asking whether it makes better sense to hear the words about the suffering servant as forecasting the future, or as theologically interpreting something horrific that has happened. In my view, it's the latter. We can, I think, make a similar case regarding the letter to the Hebrews, although in that instance, the text was written after Jesus' death, so it is calling upon history to make sense of Jesus' death in a different way, but one that is equally theological and equally interpretive. The writer of the letter tells us that Jesus' blood allows us to get into the Holy of Holies, an image that connects Jesus' death with the temple sacrifices, and particularly the annual sacrifice of the goat slaughtered for the sins of the people whose blood was sprinkled on the high altar for the forgiveness of sins. I think that the writer of this letter is using that image as a way to make sense of Jesus' bloody slaughter. The focus is not on the necessity for blood, but on making sense of the blood that was spilled. In neither case are we required to interpret the text as indicating that Jesus came to die, that Jesus had to die, or that there is something explicitly salvific about Jesus having died. But it is undeniable that it is passages like these that open the way for that understanding to develop in the medieval period, and we still live with the effects of that. We sing about it. 
We create art about it. We find value in suffering on account of it. But given the rest of the things that we claim about the God whom we worship, does it make sense to extol the virtues of a bloody death like this? At the end of the day, for Jesus or for anyone else, is suffering required to save us, to reconcile us to our God? An awful lot can be said about this. An awful lot has been said about this, as Stephen Quarles. Just l let me briefly point to the way that two American theologians have put this question. Dolores Williams asks us to consider this question from the perspective of African-American women's experience. She looks at the historic suffering of, Af of women of African descent who have suffered in many horrible ways since being brought to these shores for the benefit of others slavers, field foremen, plantation owners, white women whose children they nursed in place of their own and whose houses they kept in place of their own, and so on. Williams finds nothing salvific in this form of life taken and poured out for the benefit of others at the expense of one's own flourishing, of one's own humanity. James Cone asks something similar when he compares Jesus' crucifixion to lynching in the American South. Neither theologian finds anything meaningful, let alone salvific, in such suffering and death. Cone, for his part, argues that quite the opposite, meaning has to be made from such evil. I heard a podcast recently that relates to this. A bunch of social scientists were talking about how unexpectedly quickly attitudes toward LGBT people have changed over recent decades when compared to how slowly attitudes about race, gender, age, and body shape have been shifting. Part of the answer, it seems, is the obvious fact that LGBT people are in everyone's families, workplaces, communities, schools, churches, and so on. So people have close relationships with LGBT people, and that has helped immensely. But the other reason that they think this is the case is because of the AIDS crisis. In their view, it was transformative for the straight world to watch gay men in the 1980s and 1990s shrivel and die horribly and painfully, abandoned and alone, often rejected by family, yet not infrequently surrounded by fiercely dedicated gay comrades, supporters, and lovers who dealt with the immensity of their individual and corporate suffering with strength and courage and fortitude and love. This awful viral scourge, it turns out, opened people's eyes to the humanity of gay people in a whole new way. These social scientists were not the first experts I've heard say that the gay rights advances we have enjoyed are due in large part to the AIDS pandemic. But what does that mean? Does that mean all of these deaths, all of that suffering, all of that loss of life and promise, all of those terminated relationships we're good, we're inherently meaningful. 
It seems to me that to say that these deaths were a positive good is not all that different from its flip side, from the people who said that AIDS was a punishment from God for the so-called homosexual lifestyle. In both cases, death and suffering are held to function as the vehicle for a positive outcome. If there is meaning in those deaths, if they bring goodness, that is not because their suffering was necessary and inherently good. The meaning came from the way in which people responded to what can be seen as nothing other than a colossal tragedy. The meaning and life-giving quality of those horrible deaths was not inherent within them, but comes from the response made to them. It could only arise after the fact, the way that Cohn says meaning can be found in lynchings, not in themselves, but only after the fact, or the way that the Christian tradition found meaning in Jesus' crucifixion through using the passages about the suffering servant and Isaiah, or that the writer of the letter to the Hebrews found it in comparing Jesus' death to an annual temple sacrifice, and both of these following the execution of Christ, who did not have to die, let alone who came into the world in order to die. After all, I wonder, what sort of God would we be worshiping if God really required a blood sacrifice the way that we have sometimes thought? Would the God we know from Scripture demand bloody human flesh in order for God to be lovingly disposed to God's own creation? Sometimes the story of Abraham's willingness to sacrifice Isaac is seen as evidence that God would do so, that God actually carried through, that God actually carried through what was demanded of Abraham but then wasn't required of him. But isn't that the point to pay attention to? The point of the story is not that God demands blood, but that God demands loyalty and faithfulness. As soon as Abraham showed his willingness to do the very difficult thing that God had demanded of him, God provided a ram for the sacrifice. Instead, God stopped the sacrifice precisely because God is not interested in killing death and blood. If we reject the idea that Jesus came to die and that somehow our relationship to God is different because of the blood sacrifice of God's own incarnate self, is there then still a way to think of Good Friday as good? As being good in the sense of something positive, something to be thankful for, something that truly does reveal God's love and that changes the world? I actually think there is. But we can only do it by zooming way out. To frame the cross not in the way that a crucifix or a medieval or renaissance painting would do it, an extreme close-up, but for the widest angle we can get, the widest angle possible, a cosmic angle. How might it be different if we told the story like this instead of the way we so often have? In the beginning, God created that which is not God. God brought out of nothing something other than God, something other than God for God to love for its own sake and for no other reason. 
God granted freedom so that to that creation, to that cosmos, to develop and experiment and find its way. God's love for it and nurturing of it never wavered. Eventually, a form of life emerged with the capability of knowing God and of loving God in return. But it did so imperfectly, captive to its own fears and anxieties, so that it was unable to love itself, others of its kind, the rest of creation, or above all, God, with a fullness that alone gives true life. God attempted to show these creatures how to know God better and to live better again and again in various and multiple ways, but they failed to learn what God had to teach. So eventually, God, the transcendent creator of everything that ever was or ever will be, took on the form of one of these creatures and took the risk of placing God's very self at the mercy of what God had made. In human form, God disclosed most clearly who God is in a form that other humans could most easily comprehend. And yet even so, the message seemed too difficult and the way of life too hard and the vision too threatening to what seemed most comfortable, certain, and secure. And so the reason, and so as this vision gained more traction, it also gained more resistance. Eventually, the system of brokenness, this sad tangle of misplaced priorities and deep anxieties, revolted against the offer of God's own self. God's own creation rose up and put God to death. Horribly, painfully, and callously. And even those who had been the closest companions of God incarnate during this mission fled. There was nothing more the world can do, and it was over. God came to God's own creation in love, and God's creation rejected God and the offer of full and abundant life, totally. And even then, the God who creates out of nothing brought life out of death. God revealed God's self as the one who not only created everything that is, but will bring it to perfection, bringing undreamt of new life even out of the deepest pit of death. That's how much God loves God's creation. What if we told the story like that? If we did, we could more easily see that Jesus was not born to die. That Jesus was born to reveal in the shape of a human life the sort of relationship with ourselves, with others, with the rest of creation, and above all, with God, that we were created for. Moreover, it would reveal that Jesus' loyalty to that vision and mission which was very much at odds with the energies and values and interests of the world around him, put him on a collision course with his own destruction. Jesus, therefore, may not have been born to die, 
but his death was certainly inevitable. Its inevitability, though, does not make it salvific. In our scriptures, death is connected with sin, and sin is not interested in undoing itself any more than death as the last enemy is interested in being the agent that brings death to an end. What then, if we gave up the language about Jesus dying for our sins and instead talked about Jesus dying because of our sins? Jesus tells the sheep in Matthew 25 that whenever they tended to the sick, naked, imprisoned, thirsty, and hungry, they tended to him. Is it conceivable, therefore, that whenever we don't do that, whenever we put those people up on the cross, we do that to him? And isn't it more probable, more than probable, that we do that every day? Jesus dies because we, not the so-called Jews in John's gospel that we rightly personified this evening, clamor every day for his execution. The good news here is not that the crucifixion takes place at all. The good news is that the crucifixion is not the last word. The good news is that the last word is God's unflagging promise to save, to forgive our evil, up to and including deicide, allowing us to reject God completely, to say no murderously to God's self-offer, only for God to pronounce overruled with a glorious, oh yes, of resurrection. In the meantime, we are here with Jesus, first on the cross, now in the tomb, with nothing good to be said about it. Today, tonight, we are sunk in tragedy, confronted by the horror of what we have done and do, grieving beyond expression at the sight not of the glorious crucified body of our Savior, but of the utter wastefulness and absolute absurdity of the death we have inflicted upon the body of God and the responsibility we bear for the suffering that we cause. 